Let's be seated. So we're starting the fourth servant song today as we see this chosen, obedient servant is rejected by us and yet somehow glorified by that very thing. And it's uh, one of the most densely packed, complex passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. So we've, we've split it into two, and I've done uh, what every mature Christian leader would do with a passage like this and given the difficult bit to Woolpy. <laughs> Next week. So let's turn to Isaiah 52, verse 13. And as you do that, uh, it is good to have Scripture open at home and in this room. You can see it says, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So the same language is used in chapter 6 to describe the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. There's a very deliberate echo here of that idea to remind us, without a shadow of a doubt, exactly who the servant really is. The language that describes God is used of Jesus, therefore Jesus is God. But then Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us something else. So this is one of the, the many uniquely complicated things about Jesus. It says here, he grew up before him. Jesus also grew up before the Lord. So if Jesus really is the Lord, how could he grow up before himself? You can't watch yourself be born. So what does it mean? And what does it mean that he grew up Anyway, how can God grow? This is a very confusing thing. Like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, it says. Just as a plant grows up in the spring and we're seeing those little signs around us right now, so too was Jesus born like a human and raised like a human because he was, in fact, a human. So we get in these two little verses, close together, a key aspect of our Christian doctrine and faith, that Jesus is both fully God and also fully human. That's a unique truth about Christ. And a very normal human, for that matter. Not a special human, a normal human. Verse 2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So there was absolutely nothing special about the way that Jesus looked. He was so ordinary, in fact, that no one even remarked on it. We simply have no idea what Jesus looked like. And we can speculate based on his diet and his location and his age and his lineage and that kind of thing. But the only thing we really know for sure about his appearance was that it was completely unremarkable. A little bit more... George Bellock than George Clooney, perhaps. <laughs> Just uh, practicing that joke on the internet. He'll be here at 11. See how funny it is then. I'm only joking, because uh, he called me just as I was writing this bit of the sermon, and it came to mind. But uh, it's actually a really, really important joke. Oh, my phone's vibrating. I think he's watching online. Um, sorry, George. It's a really important point uh, in this age of, of celebrity. We, we think far too much about the way people look. And we've lifted up, we have elevated our celebrities to this status. We've made them into our new gods. And accordingly, there is all this pressure on our celebrities to look a certain way, even if it is completely fake. And now, 
we've placed all that same pressure on our children who are watching this. Now our children feel obliged to live up to all of these same exact impossible standards. Get up at 5 a.m., take a thousand professional photographs, airbrush the best one, pinch and tuck and tooth whiten, put it on the internet and go and look like that every day is what we teach our kids. Well, we're always going to want to look like our gods, aren't we? We're always going to want to emulate our gods. And so our kids are growing up with these distortions in their mind about what they should look like and how they should behave. And as someone who has frequently been uncomfortable with the way I look or dissatisfied or worried about my appearance, I just praise God that we do not have to think like that in church. Praise God that there is no Christian haircut or Christian clothing, or Christian height, or Christian weight, or Christian skin color. I think it's really, really important to note that although Christ is fully God, he is just an ordinary human, like all of us. And it's here a question should arise. If Christ is an ordinary human being, did we afford to him any ordinary human rights? Did we treat him like an ordinary human? No, we did not. Verse 14 says, many were astonished. And that word, it's wonderful, it means stupefied. Many were stupefied by the way that Jesus would look after our treatment of him. Now, the concept of human rights is clearly anachronistic. It's a ridiculous concept to impose upon a culture of 2,000 years ago. But even by the standards of the day, awful though they were, they were stupefied about what was done to him. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind that his physical treatment by us left him barely recognizable to his family and his friends and barely recognizable as human at all by the time they'd finished with him. He was dehumanized. In fulfillment of this servant song, Jesus' humanity was, was wrecked. John records for us, remember this servant song is a prophecy. It's, it says, you know, it's written in the past tense, but that's because God knows it will be fulfilled. But John, writing in the actual past tense, telling us of recent events, records that Christ was indeed flogged. And then Matthew and Mark, they record that he was beaten and he was scourged as well. That's a whip was used on him, containing shards of metal and pieces of bone to further injure him. And soldiers used these implements on him in his weakness and his vulnerability just as a way of displaying their own strength and their own power. And of course, all of this, that's the good bit, takes place before the cross itself. Jesus lived a life of rejection. Verse 3 tells us, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And yet Jesus' response, knowing in advance the brutality of the human heart, was to love us. That's how he responded to, to us. I mean, his incarnation is an act of love, knowing what was going to happen from it. And in his love, Jesus came alongside all sorts of people in all sorts of situations, people 
who were in grief, and he knew what it was to grieve with them. He was well acquainted with grief. Shortest verse in Scripture says that at the death of Lazarus, his friend, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. And I've often thought about this. I've often wondered why it was that Jesus would cry. Because Jesus was about to revive Lazarus. So this is going to be a really great moment. Why cry? Why wasn't Jesus all like, yeah, he is a bit dead, I'll give you that. But I can fix it. Like, why wasn't he flippant? I, I, you know, what would Penn and Teller do? Like, why wasn't there some sort of glitzy show? And I, I'm being serious, really. I mean, like, he, he, what's he doing crying? He raised a widow's son in Luke 7. He didn't cry then. He raised a leader's daughter in Mark 5. He didn't cry then either. In fact, he threw out all the grievers. The professional mourners had gathered around the, 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 the dead girl's body. And Jesus kicks them out and says, we don't need any crying in here, thank you very much. So why is he crying now? Scholars are perplexed. It could be to do with his own death as he reflects on what is to come. Or at least it could be to do with his knowledge of how his own death will affect them. If they grieve like this for Lazarus, what when they lose him? It could be grief over the state of the world generally. He grieves over the whole city of Jerusalem because of their rejection of God. But most people think that the reason why he's crying is because he loves them. You know, it's what you do, isn't it? Even though he knows he's going to fix this situation, he sees their grief and he joins them in it. It's such a human thing to do, isn't it? So human. To see someone you love suffering and in pain and to feel that pain as well. I mean, those are the kinds of people you want in your life. Those, those, those empathetic people are the people you want to surround yourself with. Those are the people we value the most, I think. Not the ones who ignore us or give us a platitude, but the ones who really sit with us in those times. They're the most humane. And in Christ, God does that with you. It's a beautiful thing. He steps into this grieving world that he created and we wrecked, and he joins us in our grief. He's hurt, and he joins us in our grief. So there's two ways to react to this. Now, passage contains both reactions, examples of both reaction. Uh, it ends, verse 3, with this little word, esteemed. And it's expressed in a negative way, esteemed him not. Uh, it's an accountancy term, esteem. It means a reckoning of value. In other words, we looked at Jesus, we figured out what he was worth, and we discounted it all, found him worthless, and threw him away in the bargain bin. That is one reaction to Christ. That's one way of looking at this man of sorrows, this tender-hearted, grieving man who dies, and just to say, well, it's not glamorous enough, it's not pretty enough, I don't want that. Interestingly, the passage begins with a different accounting word. So it begins and ends with two words to do with accountancy. Wise. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. It means prudently or prosperously. My servant shall, shall prosper and do prosperity. It's like we've discounted Jesus and yet he is somehow 
prospering anyway. Somehow it is, in fact, our rejection of Jesus that reveals his true value. Now, most people will not get this. They're just going to go, what are you talking about? Most people are going to turn away from a God like this. They're going to hear about the cross. They're going to hear about sin. They're going to hear about this man of sorrows. And they're going to say, absolutely not. That is not fun. I don't want that. See, for most people, the cross does not look at all wise. It looks completely ridiculous. Why would a real God leave a throne and take up a cross? It makes no sense. 1 Corinthians says, and I've shortened the passage a lot, it says, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Christ is the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So for most people, it just looks like Jesus failed. It looks like we should find a better God. It doesn't make any sense. But there are some people in the passage, even in the passage, there are some people who get it. They really get this stuff, and it clicks, and something happens. Verse 15, it says, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. It means be overawed. We're going to sit down and be quiet for a minute because we've seen something cool. For that which has not been told them, they see, it clicks, the light goes on. And that which they've not heard, they understand. Top humans, kings, the gods of their age, stop boasting about themselves when they see a real king. And that can be the same for us. When it clicks, when you get it, and it can click more than once, when you get this revelation of who Jesus is, when you realize that this thing of shame that looks so foolish at first, the cross of Christ, is actually something unique and something wise and something only God can do and something powerful, you will worship. Literally ascribe value to a thing, worship. Reckon it of value. So before you decide which way to react, to reject or to worship, let's ask why he did it. Why do such a strange thing? Key word, verse 15. He sprinkled many nations. Sprinkled is a loaded word. It's to do with purification and blood. It's a temple word with Christ here depicted as a sacrifice, the cross depicted as a sacrificial place like an altar. An atonement in blood is depicted with this word sprinkled. Like those sacrifices of old, it renders the people of God clean. A debt is paid. A sin is got rid of and paid off. A price is paid. And because the price, the lamb, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God, is God, the price far exceeds the debt of your sin. It is full, perfect, sufficient, a high price to pay. God does not belong on the cross. I do. But when it clicks that he took my place, I worship. It reveals his glory. 
which just makes me think. Because I, I actually get this. If it's really clicked for me, how am I going to behave? I can't just say I don't get it. I get it. So how am I going to behave? Is my behavior going to change? Because we like to behave like our gods. Well, brothers and sisters, God has provided for us a wonderful Lenten opportunity to find out, a little case study on our literal doorstep. So last year, the borough voted to change the name of the road down there, the main road. As part of the process, all of the side roads that come off it will now get their own names as well. We were asked as a church to choose a name for the little loop that goes around our church, and so we did. We said we would like it to be Christ Church Lane, please, the lane that goes around Christ Church. Tomorrow, we're going to find out if we are allowed that name or not, and the answer is likely no. They met last month, and they described the name of Christ as, quote, less than pleasant. They described our preference for Christ as, quote, awkward. So they might literally reject the name of Christ tomorrow. What then shall we say? Well, there's a field club road and a golf club road and a school road and a swimming pool road. The whole town is named after a church, which is really awkward. We could say, how dare you pick on us? We might feel very entitled to anger. But I have to ask, what would be wise? Not what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do is a better question. And uh, what behavior from us ultimately might bring most glory to Jesus? Because after all, we want to be like our gods. So what would it look like if we behaved as Jesus? I would rather like to win a planning application. I like them. I'd far rather win a soul for Christ. What might do that? If they reject his name, I think we should lift it up. And how do we do that? We do it by forgiving them in the very name that they reject. And that's something we can only do because he's forgiven us for the very same thing. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray for ourselves that we would enthrone you, that we would see the glory of the cross, repent of our own selfishness and our own pride and our own foolishness, and place ourselves within your wisdom and grace. And we pray, God, for those that lead us in this town. We ask that you would bless and protect them. God, that you'd keep them safe from, from any kind of uh, uh, bullying or, or censure from the Christian world, that we would be models of grace to those that lead us, even uh, when they are foolish. God, enable us, please, to be like you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.